Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Arizona State University professors Ben Mintier and Stephen Pine say that from John Muir to David Brower, from the creation of Yellowstone National Park to the Endangered Species Act, environmentalism in America has always had close to its core a preservationist ideal. Generations have been inspired by its ethos to encircle nature with our protection, to keep it apart, pristine, walled against the march of human development. But, Professors Mintier and Pines say, we have to face the facts. Accelerating climate change, rapid urbanization, agricultural and industrial devastation, metastasizing fire regimes and other quickening anthropogenic forces all attest to the same truth. The earth is now spinning through the age of humans. And a new collection of essays, After Preservation, Saving American Nature in the Age of Humans, edited by Professors Pine and Mentir, takes stock of the ways we have tried to both preserve and exploit nature to ask an important question. What is the role of preservationism in an era of seemingly unstoppable human development in what some have called the Anthropocene era? Ben Mentir is Arizona Zoological Society Endowed Chair at Arizona State University and joins us on the line. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you. And Stephen Pine is Regents Professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University and comes back to the program. Welcome back. Thanks for the invitation. A couple of years ago, we had you on a, uh, a panel on uh, fire, uh, wildfire. So uh, it's good to have you back in, on the program. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Ben Matera, let's start here. Uh, and by the way, I want to plug uh, theconversation.com. It's a, it's a fine online publication that I discovered while I was uh, in my insatiable search for all things British elections. Uh, so, and then I've been reading it since, and uh, that's where I found this article, and uh, that took me to the book uh, and, and uh, this discussion today. So, Ben Mentir, um, where did this idea of renaming our current epoch come from, Anthropocene? Yeah, it's an interesting idea. It, ha- it has a, um, a fairly um, dynamic history behind it. Uh, the chemist Paul Crutzen around 2000, popularized the term uh, as a kind of marker, and people talk about a golden spike uh, in our geological history, a marker of this period of shift, of dramatic shift toward um, this profound uh, human geological influence on the planet um, to kind of distinguish it from the Holocene, which is what we all assume we're in right now. Um, It's generated a lot of debate. Uh, Geologists uh, are um, not known for being a a very controversial community, but it's it's certainly been a controversy in the geological community and among ecologists, historians, and others, uh, often wrestling with where to drive that spike. What is it? Sixteen ten? Is it is it uh, uh, thousands of years ago? The um, the advent of agriculture? Is it uh, the middle of the twentieth century with the uptick of population, of climate change, and so forth? Um, so it stirred up a lot of discussion, and uh, that was one of the of attention grabbers that Steve and I um, gravitated toward yeah. when we were thinking about this book. Uh, by the way, uh, Professor Mentiri, uh, we're getting a little bit of an echo with you. Um, I so uh, hmm. let me uh, let me talk to Professor Pine here. We will we'll call you. We'll hang up and call you back. See if we can fix that problem. Sounds great. We'll, we'll do that right now. So, Professor Pine, um, the, I guess the the idea here is that uh, humans are having such an extensive effect on everything around us that uh, that's why we need to rename or or the idea has been floated that we'd rename the era well that's right the the sense is that we have become a geologic force we're no longer uh simply a local phenomenon changing you know local habitats and ecosystems or landscapes 
but we're we're changing the climate. We're we're interfering with the biogeochemical cycles like nitrogen and carbon. Um, we're certainly scrambling up uh, the arrangement of species on the planet, and this seems to be accelerating. And at some point, we just have to say that just as we have you know age of mammals or age of dinosaurs, in a sense, we're in the age of humans now, mm-hmm. and we just have to accept that fact. Let me read this from your article in theconversation.com. Although naming geological epochs isn't usually a controversial act, the Anthropocene proposal is radical because it means that what had been an environmental fixture against which people acted, the geological record, that is, is now just another expression of the human presence. That's right. And uh, that's uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. Uh, part of it is uh, we really do seem to need some kind of outside reference point, uh, whether it's a deity, whether it's a nature with a capital N, uh, whether it is some sort of moral order uh, against which to, to measure ourselves. And that, that seems to be a recurring theme and issue. The, part of the geologic um, issue is that the geologists have been arguing about when the Pleistocene ends and the Holocene begins, or what what the Holocene means, and they've been unhappy with it. Um, just uh, They've been unhappy with it and arguing because they didn't like the idea of using that climate change, namely the Ice Ages, as a, as a marker, and then they didn't like uh, the Quaternary's interest in using people, the arrival of humans, as a marker. They wanted something more traditional. So this is a continuation of a debate within geology. For the environmental community, uh, the real issue um, has become um, the, these enormous planetary-scale changes. And why that matters is that it leads to an argument that we need planetary-scale responses, mm-hmm. potentially. And that's that's what you're responding to here, I think. Uh, so I believe we have uh, Professor Mintir back on the on the phone. No, he's he's having to change uh, phones. Oh, he's having to change phones. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. So well, we, we can continue here. All, all right. We'll uh, we'll hope to have him back on uh, soon here. Uh, so as you uh, as you write in the in the book, um, oh. what w- one view is that for those who view wild as the essence of wilderness. I thought you put it very well, at least in the publicity materials, that the ethos has been to encircle nature with our protection, keep it apart, pristine, walled against the march of human development. So for some who, who want to maybe change this view, the uh, they say wild as the essence of wilderness maybe hardly matters because what results may result from human actions that lie beyond our human control. Well, there are lots of things going on here, and, and there's a whole spectrum, more than a spectrum. I would call it a constellation of views. Uh, and we, we tend to put it on a spectrum line. At one extreme, we have sort of the, the uh, primitivists uh, who really want, you know, pristine nature, uh, ringed off, protected, untouched. The other extreme, the Prometheans, who simply insist that the scale of operations is so much that we are remaking the world uh, willy-nilly for good or ill, and it's time we, we seized it. Exceeds that, except uh, accepted that proposition, and then acted accordingly. And in which case, there's really no wilderness doesn't make any sense because no place can be sealed off. Um, the climate, uh, these large biogeochemical cycles, the movement of species, these have changed it. And I think part of the response from uh, the, the preservationist side has been to emphasize the wild, not the wilderness, except. 
uh, wilderness especially. Um, so there are lots of challenges. Yeah, and yeah certainly. The, you know, the nature preservation movement is no longer uh, simply tied to wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Endangered Species Act has become uh, a, a huge fulcrum. Uh, for protecting species and habitats. Uh, there are biosphere reserves. There are monuments, parks. There are all kinds of, of responses, not just the wild. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that preserving nature, or what, what does that mean? Does it mean saving the genetic heritage? Does it mean saving the scene? Uh, what does that mean in this context? These are all open for discussions. And so we organized the book. Actually, it was Ben's brainstorm, and then he invited me to participate. It became a kind of dueling banjos uh, exchange. Uh, was to try to create a kind of salon effect where we would have lots of people representing all the different points of view uh, coming in. And uh, so you spent. I want to follow up into what something you just mentioned because I perhaps put this out too narrowly on on Twitter. That I, I just changed one word: preservationism. To wilderness when I when I tweeted this out earlier this morning, so that probably that's that's too narrow. Then this is this is broader than is. wilderness. I think that's part of the change is that the wilderness wilderness is changing. You know, when you read the early um, arguments for wilderness or Roderick Nash's uh, Wilderness in the American Mind book, uh, really a foundational document, and others, they were wilderness was a cultural uh, creation uh, as well as a kind of piece of transcendent nature. It was a part of American experience, a part of American heritage. But as as things have evolved, um, it's becoming more and more uh, a piece of the wild, uh, it, ah-cultural, ah-historical. It's shifted. And I think we're talking about nature preservation. We're talking about lots of things other than just preserving wild. Um, so, you know, as I say, uh, species, habitats, uh, other kinds of, of parts of the natural world uh, are all a part of this now, and they don't really fall into a wilderness label, and they may not really respond to a preservationist label. There are lots of arguments for intervening, and increasingly it's a case of what is the nature of the intervention, what is the scale and rate of intervention required. And a lot of this hinges on whether you accept the Anthropocene as a legitimate idea, a description of a reality, or whether this is kind of an invented phrase and it's liable to lead us astray by encouraging geoengineering, planetary-scale, massive interventions, um, which to to many would seem alarming in its own right. We are talking with Stephen Pine from Arizona State University, and also we bring back Ben Mentir from ASU. Uh, Ben Mentir, I believe we we have you on the line. Sounds great. Okay, yeah, that sounds. <laughs> I think that sounds better. Uh, so um, the, the plan here, the the result of the book, was uh, to create, a, as you write, a, a salon, a kind of a literary summit, and have uh, you know uh, prominent uh, writers, environmentalists respond to to this question: What does it mean to save American nature in the age of humans? And you reached out to some pretty prominent people. Yeah, we sure did, um, and we were really excited about the response. Uh, I think Steve and I were both eager to ensure that this wasn't um, a partisan discussion, that uh, we had this, you know, the full swirl of voices represented They're as full as possible. Um, and so we got Andy Revkin from Dot Earth, New York Times, Dave Foreman, uh, the well-known wilderness preservationist, founder of Earth First, um, 
Don Worcester, the well-known environmental historian, Bill McKibben, the environmental writer, activist, uh, and many, many others. And we were really pleased with the mix and um, the seriousness with which everyone you know, took the task, uh, and also the grace that they brought to the essays. One of the goals of the book was not to just you know, do another academic compilation. Uh, we're fine with academic compilations. We've, we've done them ourselves. But we wanted this to be a little different. We wanted it to be livelier. We wanted it to be kind of personal. We wanted it to be um, a, a kind of deep meditation on what this new idea of the Anthropocene might mean for those who care about the future of nature preservation. And people really rose to the challenge. Let's take a break. We're going to come back more with Ben Mentir and Stephen Pine from Arizona State University, and they're editors of a new collection. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a collection of these essays that we've been talking about. We're going to be talking about some of the specific ideas. Uh, the title of the book out from University of Chicago Press, After Preservation, Saving American Nature in the Age of Humans. And uh, we're inviting you to join the conversation, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. What do you think? Or upraxis at gmail.com is our email, upraxis at gmail.com. And after the break, uh, I want to start with this this very provocative idea. This is from ecologist uh, Erie Ellis. Uh, we've simply outgrown nature, so we have to become more comfortable with the used and crowded planet we've made. Uh, interesting idea. We'll, we'll talk about that and many others in the book following the break. Next TED Radio Hour, listening. So different objects sound like different things. To the universe. Jupiter sounds like pebble was being thrown onto a tin roof. Listening without hearing. I can see the actual drum skin resonate going up and down. Listening. It is hard. To each other. But we all have the capacity to listen in this way. Listen to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. During next month's Uinta Basin StoryCorps project, Utah Public Radio will bring the recording booth to you. One of 10 stops during this year's national tour, the Vernal Library will be home to a fully equipped recording studio housed in a portable Airstream trailer. Share a story with a teacher, a favorite friend, or someone who has made a difference in your life. We begin taking reservations on June 18th. More information about UPR's Uinta Basin StoryCorps found online at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm talking with Arizona State University professors Ben Mentir and Stephen Pine. They're editors of a new book. Uh, it's out from University of Chicago Press. It's called After Nature. They reached out to writers, environmentalists, scientists to uh, submit essays responding to the question, what does it mean to preserve American nature in the age of humans? And uh, I want to jump into this very provocative statement from ecologist uh, Erie Ellis, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the first name correctly, that we've simply outgrown nature. Ben Mentir, what, what are you talking about there? Yeah, so it's Earl Ellis. Oh, Earl, Earl. <laughs> I, I, I misread that as an I. Okay, Earl. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the more powerful essays in the book, I, I think. Um, and uh, Earl certainly takes no prisoners uh, in, in his, uh, his writing about the Anthropocene. He's, he's been a very prominent voice uh, in a lot of these discussions in the last few years. And uh, it's, a, it's a very provocative uh, notion, this, this idea that we're, we're too big for nature, that we've outgrown nature, that we don't, in a sense, um, have the same relationship to nature, the same necessity of, um, 
our dependence on environmental systems in the way perhaps that we that we once did. Uh, and it's guaranteed to stir up a lot of controversy because it, for some, it seems to suggest that um, we're large and in charge, uh, and that we're in a different phase now, and that the the kind of uh, you know, nature preservationist, wilderness-centered stuff that defined a lot of American environmentalism from Thoreau to Muir to Aldo Leopold and beyond uh, is behind us, and that we're in this we're in this this brave new world. Um, and uh, it depends on how you see it. And this is something I think that probably is a refrain for a lot of the essays in the book. We, we talk about the Anthropocene being kind of an environmentalist Rorschach uh, for, for a lot of discussions. And if, if you see this as just a, a kind of fait accompli, that, that this is true, this is empirically true, and we are this outsized influence on the planet, um, then it might lead you down a road which suggests, well, we ought to get good at being smart planetary managers. Um, it might lead you down a road that suggests that we don't have to worry about some things maybe that we worried about before, like preserving nature, preserving species, and so on. Uh, and that split, which road you go down, I guess, uh, is uh, something that's really dividing the community right now. And I think Earl's essay probably uh, is one of the more forceful expressions of this kind of let's take the planetary reins idea of than any in the book, and um, geez, you know, Dave Foreman gives it back uh, 110% in the volume, so we, we definitely have uh, at least a couple sides of the debate captured between the two of them. Stephen Pine, I wonder if you could uh, talk about Dave Foreman. Uh, he he calls, uh, he condemns this vision we've just been talking about, species too big for nature. Uh, he, he, he calls these people anthropoceniacs. Um, who argues are promoting nothing less than technological takeover of life on the planet. says, we're not gods. That's a pretty forceful uh, pushback. Uh, so, Professor yeah. Pine, yes. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, were you? Yeah, so directing I'm, that to I'm you. I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Oh, oh, sorry about that. Did, can you hear me now? Yeah, no, I'm fine. Yeah, um, yeah I think... Uh, you know, if, if one side shouts, the other side's going to shout back. And we have a bit of that, but most people were interested in a conversation. And one of the things that uh, I think surprised both Ben and me about this and delighted us in a way was the sense of humility that runs through most of the pieces. That, um, you yeah, know, we, we may be um, unhinging the planet, but... Um, our record of management isn't all that great, and to somehow believe that we've to believe that we've changed enough that we we can seize uh, control of these levers and and work towards a conscious goal is is uh, is itself unhinged. Uh, there was a real sense of of modesty uh, and the limitations of our knowledge uh, that our our power extends our ability to control what its effects are. And an argument, finally, that a lot of the argument for preserving nature was simply to uh, preserve a future, uh, to keep options open, um, and that we really can't trust ourselves uh, as much as we would like. Yes, we have to accept that we are operating at a different uh, rate and level that, that really constitutes perhaps a phase change in the geologic history of the planet, but nonetheless, that does not um, authorize us to sort of do what we want and trust our own judgments. So I think that was one of the things that came through consistently from, from most of the sides. 
So, Professor Pine, I'll direct this one to you again. Uh, the sense of humility, uh, some in in the book are warning that we shouldn't become so humble that we don't act, you know, that we just withdraw. Well, that's again, I mean, this is this is why Ben and I are, are both pragmatic trained. Well, Ben is trained seriously as a, as a pragmatist. I'm, I'm a much more casual one. But our sense is that neither side, I think, you know, has the truth and that we're always having to negotiate uh, in an experimental way what to do. We, we need to be free to act uh, and intervene where necessary, but we also need uh, to stay the hand uh, that doing stuff, simply to be doing stuff, doesn't always turn out well. In fact, often turns out poorly. That, that we're always um, in an experiment uh, whose outcome is unknown. And uh, we need to be prudent. Uh, we need a certain amount of modesty on that. Yes, we need to act, but we also there's also a case to be uh, to made for not acting, and this is part of the, I think where the preservationist tradition uh, still has a lot of vitality. That mm. we need we can't subject everything to ourselves uh, in the way we have. Mm. Uh, so uh, let me turn back to Ben Mateer here. Um, the way we act or the arena in which we act is important. I think there's, and sometimes there's a debate about that or at least frustration. So uh, Andrew Revkin, author of Dot Earth, environmental blog for New York Times, uh, in the book, he said that uh, what we need to do is focus on restoring bipartisan politics to be able to cope with the challenges of living you know, in, in this world. Yeah, I think it's a great point, uh, and it's a reminder that um, despite good intentions or the latest science or um, the um, sort of technological capacity that we have to act, unless our politics are right, um, none of this is going to get done. Uh, and I think it's a great reminder that, you know, this debate about the Anthropocene, about preservation, about restoration, about conservation, all these terms, sustainability, um, that that academics and environmentalists and, and uh, professionals, managers, and so forth, spend so much time um, thinking about and, and trying to understand and trying to implement that all of these debates are, are well and good, but unless we have a politics that's able to mobilize decisions uh, in the right way, um, it's not going to matter. And so I think that essay is a really important one in the book, and we kind of, um, in a sense, uh, use that as the opening frame of the book to remind us all that um, this was also about getting our politics right, not mm -hmm. just about getting um, con conceptual uh, framings of the Anthropocene right or of the role of humans in nature, but actually making, being, having the capacity to, to move something forward, whatever it is. Hmm. Stephen Pine, I'll direct this to you. Um, it's, this reminds me, Andrew Revkin's point, of conversations I've had with uh, friends who are scientists and we, we talk about climate change, and they get frustrated. They say, you know, you might say, just picking a number out of the air, you know, maybe half of Utahns um, perhaps don't believe in human-caused uh, climate change, or at least a significant portion. Um, and, and so you present that fact to them, and, and then they say, but they should. Uh, it's, the science is overwhelming. And then I respond, well, but uh, what are you going to do to convince them? <laughs> it seems like we're talking past each other. 
Well, I think we are on, on lots of things. Uh, people people go back to have a point of view of the world, a sense of how it should work, maybe even a, a kind of implied moral order to things, and they they want to fit themselves and their behavior within that. And of course, there are always econo- strong economic interests as well. What what Mark Twain called corn pone opinions, that uh, they will follow uh, their own interest. Um, you know, I'm. Uh, the idea of anthropogenic climate change um, makes sense to me, uh, and particularly as a fire historian, it makes uh, it's, it's part of a continuous narrative. So I, I have no difficulties with that. But I also recall that uh, when, when I was in graduate school, the, the climate community uh, was telling us that we were headed for a new ice age, and that this, you know, the Milankovitch cycles uh, are working their inexorable. Uh, rhythms and uh, you know it's it's just mathematically present that that we've been in a, in a pleasant interglacial and and the ice is coming and then suddenly we've switched uh, into climate change in effect we're we're creating a fire age so I think that there are reasons to be uh, skeptical uh, of some of the stuff that comes out uh, it needs to be sorted through but that doesn't. Uh, that doesn't absolve us from uh, from acting, from taking some kinds of decisions. And I think what I find distressing on the political scene is not that we don't, we can't convince people of one side or the other, but we we seem to have abandoned the process by which we come to some kind of decision mm-hmm. and accept it. Uh, and instead, uh, there seems to be no legitimacy to the political process itself, not just one side or the other, and convincing. So I've also spent a lot of time looking at fire, and, uh, you know, a lot of our fire policies uh, have been driven by the best science of the time, and the science was wrong. Well, mm-hmm. it does self-correct, but that may that may lead you in the interim to uh, poor decisions. So again, I think it makes an argument for uh, prudence and uh, accepting the limitations of our knowledge uh, and the uncertainties and the fact that once we act, we change conditions, so our old knowledge is some way different. Um, so, uh, you know, I can be sympathetic to the skeptics, but not really to the deniers. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that just same. And, and what I say is what, what I find ultimately distressing is, the, is our inability to concoct a political system, a process, that we all recognize as legitimate and then can accept the conclusions when they come. Hmm. Ben Mentir, I wonder if you could follow up with, with this. It's It seems to me that, uh, you know, a, as is noted in this essay in the book, uh, politics is very important, obviously. You know, the advances that you would see in the preservationist uh, um, ethic, the Dangerous Species Act, Wilderness Act, all you know, the, these have been political advances. It also seems to be communications and marketing and, um, you know, all of this is involved here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, it, you don't have to go back very far to see how the political system worked quite differently uh, for preservation. Um, it's it's almost mind-boggling to think about the passage of the Wilderness Act or the Endangered Species Act. It's 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 unthinkable, uh, perhaps, uh, in a in a very regrettable way that we would have these today if if these were up for debate. Um, and there are certainly elements uh, in the 
political universe uh, allied against these uh, these um, protections and that, that worked very hard to to try to roll them back. Um, but these were products of a different time, uh, and they were also products of a a very savvy um, marketing promotions <laughs> uh, machine uh, among conservationists. I mean, David Brower and the Sierra Club, uh, Howard Zanheiser, and others. The Wilderness Act. Um, Sierra Club photo books. I mean, it was a, a remarkable time for capturing public interest, appreciation of wilderness, of, of, of nature protection, and actually getting results after this long toil. Um, and wow, uh, we're we're in a different space right now politically. We're we're so fractured um, and so polarized. Uh, and the idea that we could have this kind of growing movement to enact some sort of uh, federal uh, level uh, protection for the values that someone like Brower or Muir or Elder Leopold or others held dear, um, that seems very fanciful today. And, uh, you know, I think Steve is right. Uh, the, the legitimacy of the politics is something that's been thrown into question. And without that, without uh, that kind of backing, any deliberation we have around this um, is... is um, not as robust as it as it has to be, and so, yeah, I think um, it's, we don't have to look back very far to see how how different things uh, were. So, Ben Minter, what? Yes, Stephen Pine, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to uh, add a comment there that it may be that uh, the preservationist movement, particularly as expressed in wilderness, uh, is a historical moment, and it it, it was something that uh, arrived at particular times and places for specific cultural, historical reasons, and may not be able to be reproduced. But it was, it was an act. It was a unique uh, moment. And if that's the case, then we may need to think about preserving nature in other ways, thinking of other kinds of devices, other concepts, other approaches that make sense within the context we have now, mm. rather than sort of yearn to go back uh, to a time that is unlikely to return. What uh, what form would 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 that take? Do you think if it's if it's not wilderness, what is well, it? Ben, go ahead. Well, I, you know, Steve, this is something you and I talk about quite a bit. It's 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 moving on to the other landscapes. It's moving on to uh, the restored landscapes. It's working landscapes. It's woodlots. It's uh, you know, some have argued that. We're looking now at a conservation movement that is uh, focused more and more, and this, of course, is a point of debate, more on novel ecosystems, systems that uh, have that bear the imprint of, of human activity, uh, that might have a, a novel mix of species, but that yet are healthy systems and that function and provide a service that we care about. Um, we might be talking about sort of semi-designed, uh, semi-wild systems, are all of these kind of composite forms that are probably quite different <laughs> than the uh, you know the wilderness uh, model of someone like John Muir or David Brower, but that increasingly conservationists argue are you know the reality that surrounds us, and that if we don't uh, embrace a kind of wilderness or a preservationist model that has room for these kinds of landscapes, we you know we're 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 in trouble. Mm. Uh, and Stephen Pine, I can see, I, I, I can take your point, uh, especially if it's wilderness or nothing. You know, it's maybe likely to be nothing. Uh, I wonder, follow up, what, why do you think this may be a historical moment? We may be unsuccessful getting future wilderness. 
Well, I think it was, it was a, a combination of things. Um, and again, I'm thinking as a historian here, part of it was simply the availability of public land um, that could be put into a wilderness farm. I mean, we were not putting wilderness in private land. It, it depended on public lands, particularly in the post-World War II era, as we began um Oh, moving more of the national forests and other public lands into production, there was a choice made that we, we could continue that or we could set some aside. We could probably not uh, do both on, on the same site. So there was an opportunity, abundant land. There were people interested. There was a, a tradition of discussion of wilderness, and it could all come together uh, in a way but now we've, uh, you know, most of the public lands are allocated. They've, they've, there's not a lot of multiple-use land left. Uh, we've been dividing it off into special purposes for, for different, whether it be wilderness, whether it be wildlife refuges, whether it be parks, whether it be monuments, historical, recreational, whatever. That landscape has now been partitioned in ways that would make a, a new wilderness uh, project much more difficult. I also think that some of the intellectual capital has been spent, and that maybe, as Ben points out, the bigger return will come from thinking about reconstructing and restoring landscapes, or not restoring, if that, that's a problematic term, renewing, some kind of ecological regeneration, renewal, getting some kind of health back into ecosystems. And a lot of these are going to require a lot of intervention. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service intervenes all the time. Uh, the Nature Conservancy on its lands, a very active intervention, but for ecological goods and services, not just to you know, produce uh, big timber or uh, heavy grazing. Um, so there are lots of examples there, and it may be that we're looking at a moment where the pure preservationist time uh, has has had its moment. Now we, we we have these left as monuments to that period, and thankfully so. But we may be putting our energies elsewhere. And if the Anthropocene uh, concept is correct, uh, then maybe we need to scale up some of those interventions as well. But that's a different argument than just simply setting it aside. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we'll, we'll pick this idea up. Uh, what, uh, what are some of the ideas out there? Uh, continue uh, with some of those. Also, uh, I was fascinated by this. Uh, I don't know. Maybe this is a quixotic or, or out there outlandish idea. Biologist Harry Green. Um, his manifesto to rewild the Anthropocene. We'll talk about ramifications of this. Uh, his idea actively introduced cheetahs, elephants, camels, lions to North America as proxies for the long-lost megafauna of the Pleistocene. Uh, that's kind of out there, but we'll talk about that and some other ideas following the break. Money may or may not buy you love. It can for sure buy you a legitimate green card. It gets immigrants who want to pursue the American dream it gets them to the front of the line for the green card process. I'm Kai Rizdal. Invest half a million dollars, create 10 full-time jobs. Welcome to America. The Investor Visa next time on Marketplace from APM. Monday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Veggie or grilled shrimp fettuccine alfredo. Grilled fresh salmon. A 10-ounce New York steak, all with a slice of cheesecake. 
Choose one of these entrees or order off the menu and support Utah Public Radio at the same time. Dine this Tuesday at a generous Logan restaurant between 5 and 9 p.m. No matter what you eat, 15% of all menu purchases go to Utah Public Radio. Come as you are. No reservations are required. For restaurant or other information, go to upr.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We reached our last segment of the program today, and I'm joined by Arizona State University professors Ben Mintier and Stephen Pine. Uh, they are uh, uh, the instigators behind a new collection of essays, editors for this uh, collection, After Preservation, Saving American Nature in the Age of Humans. It's out from University of Chicago Press. And uh, take stock of the ways we've uh, tried to both preserve and exploit nature to ask an important question, what's the role of preservationism in an era of seemingly unstoppable human development, what some are calling the Anthropocene? You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, and our email is upraxis at gmail.com. A couple of uh, other points I want to make, but I I do want to set this up before the break, and so I don't want to leave it here. Uh, Very interesting proposal. Uh, by biologist Harry Green. Rewild the Anthropocene. Actively introduce cheetahs, elephants, camels, and lions to North America. Um, ben Mentira, I, I don't know if you want to tackle this one. <laughs> sure. Yeah, Harry's a true believer. Um, he has, with his colleagues, um, several years ago, um, started a, a series of discussions around what's called Pleistocene rewilding. And the idea is, as you describe it, um, to take biological analogs of these long-lost charismatic megafauna from North America, take them from Asia and Africa, uh, and to um, what you might say transplant them or to translocate them, as conservationists would say, uh, into North American reserves, uh, to start small in an experimental way and then to kind of grow it into a larger uh, project of rewilding. the goal is uh, a very controversial one for, for for understandable reasons. Anytime you're dealing with predators and predator um, introduction into communities, uh, especially wildlife that are are not technically native um, to North America, they're they're proxies for for lost native species. Um, and it's controversial for any number of scientific reasons. But um, Harry is a, a real booster of this, and and many others are as well. And you know, if I'm reading it, I would say that the real goal here is to try to give a shot in the arm to the conservation movement and to the preservation movement in particular to kind of update it, to, to reboot it for the Anthropocene, where we're we're calling the shots, we're um, we're in charge, but you know, perhaps paradoxically, we're using that power to try to restore. Um, a kind of wildness that we haven't seen on this continent for some time. So it's an interesting proposal. It's it's definitely um, at the edge of a continuum of approaches uh, in terms of intervention in ecological systems. Um, and uh, I think that it, it definitely forces us to think about our, our ideas of wild and, and what, our, what the possibilities might be on the landscape. Stephen Pine, uh, we have done this, uh, you know, not in this broad of a scale, but of course, the still controversial, in some circles, reintroduction of the wolf to Yellowstone National Park. That's one example. Sure. Well, we also have a lot of experience moving species around deliberately and accidentally. I mean, most of our agriculture is based on introduced plants and and animals uh, that were not native to North America. Um, and we think a lot of that has turned out okay. Uh, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that ran amok. 
um, with introduction. So we're still, yeah, the record on that is, is pretty spotty, I think. Um, if I could draw, you, you wanted to know what kinds of examples. If I could draw from my own uh, particular interest in fire. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, we went through a period where we were going to put fires out, and we did that for 50 years, tried that, and then the last 50 years we've been trying to put fire back, or at least the problem was we took uh, good fire out as well as bad fire. So we wanted to reintroduce good fire, and that's been a real uh, mixed uh, result. And in some places in the southeast where you have working landscapes, you have a tradition of burning, it's 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 successful within limits. Florida burned 4 million acres, prescribed burn, uh, last year. Uh, it has not worked in the West. And what you're finding is because of uh, the nature of the public lands and the mixture of uses and the controversies over what those uses should be, that we're creating a, now a kind of mashup. And so uh, on on any given fire, you may be fighting one part of it. Another part, you may be um, using that fire to do some ecological work, get some burning done. Another part, you may be backing off and burning out, um, a kind of surrogate prescribed burn. So the sense that there is a, a clear mission and rules of engagement, I think, are gone. We're facing conditions we haven't faced before. Uh, we're not going to be able to anticipate, and what we're left with is a much more pluralistic and pragmatic approach to trying to ride through uh, what's coming at us. Uh, I don't think we're going to get ahead of it. Uh, we can't leave it alone. But what the nature of those interventions are going to be can be very confused, and it can look like a mashup to people who really want uh, clearly drawn instructions and guidelines and mission statements and that's, I don't think that's the world that exists now. And so I would say, if I could use that as an analogy, we're finding similar kinds of things to do with the preservation of species or habitats and so forth. And it's not, it's not even a spectrum. I, I think of it more and more as a constellation, all these, all these points out there, and we try to find ways to connect those dots in useful ways. Ben Minter, I want to uh, follow up on the point that Stephen Pine just made, but frame it in this way. In your introduction, the first chapter of the book, um, you and Professor Pine write, if I can find this here, you, you quote uh, David Brower, um, who said that uh, when they, the exploitationists, win, it's forever. When we win, it's merely a stay of execution. I think that has been, that's the paradigm preservationists have had, is, is that changing, do you think? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know if it's changing. I think there's probably um, uh, increased level of discomfort uh, among preservationists right now because of the nature of some of these debates. And I think the Anthropocene is just the latest shot across the bow that has, has really rattled uh, the community. Um, and I think it strikes to the core of, of you know, Brower's point, which is this fear that these hard-won victories, the Wilderness Act, the Endangered Species Act, and so forth, um, that they're never final, they're never guaranteed, um, they can be reversed um, if the political will is there, uh, and they can certainly be undermined, and they can be undermined in various ways, they can be undermined intellectually, they can be undermined by a changing world, a changing you know, biophysical world, they can be undermined by a changed politics, um, and I think that what we're seeing here is a, you know, a kind of shrinking, 
um, population of of preservationists as as the as the world is changing and as we're moving toward a more um, humanized environmentalism and probably a sense of um, concern and a little bit more sense of embattlement among this community that feels that you know geez uh, when is this going to stop and you know when are we going to settle these questions once and for all and I think the the um, you know one of the refrains of the book or one of the take home messages of the book is that these debates have never been settled. They, they weren't settled a hundred years ago with Hetch Hetchy, uh, John Muir, and Gifford Pinchot, and all that. Uh, they weren't settled uh, necessarily <laughs> in mid-century Glen Canyon Dam, and they aren't settled now. And they probably never will be settled. And the dialogue is important. Maintaining the habits and the the culture of dialogue around these ideas is incredibly important. But we're not likely to resolve some of these fundamental conflicts uh, around the use and protection of nature, Anthropocene or not. So at the, we just have about three minutes left. I'll give each of you, starting with Ben Mintier, a, a chance to respond to this. What, uh, as you put it in your essay in theconversation.com, what's the way forward then? What, at the end of this, and having had all of these writers respond to this, what do you, what do you think is the takeaway? Well, one thing that I think is really um, uh, encouraging in all of this, and I think this maybe is the antidote to what I just said about these debates never being settled, is that I do think there's some calibration going on. I think there's some sense in the community that um, it's it's not satisfying to take a, a hardline nature-first approach, and it's not satisfying to take a hardline people-first approach, and that the truth is probably in the most sustainable path is somewhere in the middle. Um, and Steve doesn't like continuum. So uh, let's just say another point in the constellation out there somewhere that what we're going to have to do increasingly is balance these impulses and these values. Um, and by balance, that doesn't mean that Yellowstone gets open uh, to, um, to commercial exploitation, half of it, and half of it is pres- preservation land. Um, we may decide certain landscapes are inviolable, and we want to protect them that way, and we want to continue to do that, and that's fine. But we're increasingly going to have to balance that with a more uh, pragmatic and um, use-oriented approach. And, and I think that that's something that you know everyone in the book, some reluctantly, some more exuberantly maybe, um, sees, and probably uh, I would say is the future is getting, um, it's increasingly clear that Striking that balance is our is our challenge. Just about a minute left. Stephen Pine will give you the last word. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I would agree with everything uh, Ben said, um, and I would also I would also uh, add that as the book evolved and we got essays, there was a sense uh, among almost everyone that there were a lot of good things in the preservationist tradition, and we didn't want to jettison them under some alarmist uh, program that suddenly. Uh, the earth is turning into a crockpot, and it's it's falling apart, and we need to intervene now on huge scales uh, to stop it. That there was a sense that there's a lot in the tradition. We want to identify what in it still is relevant and worth and worth arguing on behalf of. Ben Mentier is Arizona Zoological Society Endowed Chair at Arizona State University and has been our guest today. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. And Stephen Pine is Regents Professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. Thank you. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you. And the book uh, that they've uh, collected uh, these essays in, After Preservation, Saving America, uh, Saving American Nature in the Age of Humans, it's out from University of Chicago Press. 
And uh, you can comment further at upr.org, where you can hear this conversation again uh, later today. Coming up tomorrow on the program, hope you'll uh, join us for A Splash of Kindness. That's the uh, title of a book by John Allen. Uh, ripple effect is all around us, he says. We've all benefited from a committed teacher, a loving parent, caring coach, helpful stranger. The book celebrates the positive results of acts of kindness. And we'll ask you to tell us your stories of benefiting from or uh, committing an act of kindness. Splash of kindness tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Zane Gray's Writers of the Purple Sage and Steve Trimble's Sagebrush Ocean are book titles that may invoke excitement from your literary past, or you may be traveling along the interstates and side roads of our great state as monotony sets in and drowsiness tightens your grip on the wheel while you nod your way through endless miles of this seemingly drab landscape. In science jargon, it's referred to as Sage Steppe, the dominant landscape throughout much of Utah and the Great Basin. Much of this maligned biotic community has been degraded or lost through various mismanagement practices. Sage Steppe is considered an endangered ecosystem, despite the seemingly large area it inhabits, primarily due to fragmentation. And the iconic Gunnison sage-grouse has followed its demise, having recently been placed on the threatened species list. I just returned from spending a day of study in the field with 16 college students running transects for the Grand Teton National Park. The park is spending millions in sage step restoration work to reclaim this critical plant community. Sagebrush is an important member of the ecosystem that helps support many birds, reptiles, amphibians, and mammals, as well as an abundance of insects, worms, and microbes. One study found nearly 300 arthropod species directly living on just a few sagebrush plants, including 72 spiders, 237 insect, 42 of which were gall-forming, amongst other species. Such diversity also indicates that sage is playing an important part in maintaining the health of the environment, providing ecosystem services such as soil protection, water conservation, and nutrient cycling. Sage is well adapted to the demands of the semi-arid deserts, it has taproots that can go over 15 feet to suck up any groundwater that might exist and forms extensive webs of surface roots in association with symbiotic fungal hyphae to efficiently gather any rain that might fall. Oftentimes, sagebrush grows in clonal communities with members that can live over 100 years. The aromatic odors emanating from sage, especially following a downpour of rain, comes from a mix of chemicals including camphor, terpenoids, and a cocktail of other volatile compounds. Some of the chemicals have anti-herbivory action by killing the gut bacteria of various browsers, although pronghorn antelopes seem to have evolved resistance to these toxins. Other browsers like cattle, sheep, and mule deer can only eat sagebrush in small doses or when the leaves are young and tender. It is this mixture of molecules that sagebrush produces which come into play for communication. Sagebrush is eaten by many mammals and insects. When sagebrush is browsed on by a pronghorn or grasshopper, volatile compounds are released from the wound that warn other branches of the same sagebrush as well as the neighboring sagebrush about the potential threat to them. The sagebrush in the area react to the warning by metabolizing toxins that make the taste unappealing and that cause digestive discomfort or future herbivores who try to make a meal of them. Native Americans considered sage a sacred plant. It offered medicine, clothing, shelter, and was commonly used in their ceremonial sweat lodges. Last but not least, my lovely granddaughter was given the name sage. So the next time you find yourself surrounded by our sagebrush ocean, 
Pay tribute to this vibrant, intricate community of life. Jack Green, a lover of sagebrush. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ross Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Public radio attracts an audience that is focused on professional attainment. Do you have a product, service, or degree that can further their career growth? Let our listeners know by becoming a UPR program sponsor. For more information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. And stay with us for the TED Radio Hour that's coming up next, followed by Performance Today at 11 and Exploring Music at 1 o'clock. It's currently 67 degrees on the USU campus in Logan. This is Utah Public Radio.